I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Man, whatever happened in The Matrix? Anyone, uh, anyone remember The Matrix? The Matrix? You remember The Matrix? The was movie? that an anime? So what was it? <laughs> what, what? Do you want me to tell you what it, it is? is. I like love... the delivery on that. Jesus, man. Uh, that movie was... Larry Fish. Larry Fishburne pretty much owned that movie and propped up that movie. That movie would not be the hit it was if not for Lawrence Fishburne because it does have a ridiculous premise to it. Yeah, someone needs to be able to sell the ridiculous premise, and certainly Keanu Reeves can only react. Yeah, and I mean, he has to basically shoulder the burden for all of the uh, exposition in the movie, for setting up the world, but also being the person who has to make the audience absolutely believe in the premise. Mm -hmm. And he does a great job at it, that he does a great job of, of so throwing himself into that role that everyone else can be a little bit cheesy or be a little bit silly, and uh, it it holds up as a movie. And I think he's probably the best part about the sequels, too, because Lawrence mm. Fishburne just owns that role. And yeah. you know that originally, um, and I don't know how true this is, but I've, I've heard it from multiple sources, that they originally wanted Sean Connery in the role as oh, Morpheus. Oh, yes, the Highlander. That's exactly what it is, though, yeah. is that it would have just been his character Ramirez all over again. Yeah. There would have been no difference between that, and I don't think he would have sold it that way. Then well. you would have had to have the Matrix soundtrack by Queen, and it wouldn't have worked. Yes, it would. <laughs> it would fucking work. Someone should, one of our audience, you rescore the Matrix by using only Queen songs. I think it would be amazing. <laughs> I, I, there's no movie that isn't made better with a Queen soundtrack. Que- even, sa- the, even the raves? I'm trying to think how you how you have a rave in Zion to Queen. I think they've done some, they'd have to write some original music for that. Mm-hmm. They were, Brian May's still alive. Brian May is still ar- alive. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stuff they could have used. It's too bad The Matrix didn't come out before we lost Freddy, but <laughs> I think that that would have been incredible. I mean, look at the... Um, you know, Flash Gordon movie that they did. They, that's all uh, Brian May. Brian May is a giant nerd, and also I believe a doctor in astrophysics now. What? Yeah, he is. He's a he's fully qualified to be one of the Hong Kong Cavaliers. <laughs> he's both a scientist and a rock musician. Beautiful. I think he discovered some kind of quasar or something. It's all over my head. Neil deGrasse Tyson can can step in and talk about the uh, the the ways in which what I said was absolutely wrong because I do not know what I'm talking about. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is kind of a little bit of a killjoy. You know, when you have Neil deGrasse Tyson debunking the physics of Star Wars, sorry, Neil. Well, sorry. That's the thing is, it's a different movie, Star Wars, than say Gravity yeah. or The Martian. Because right. those are things that are supposed to take place in a realistic world that uses realistic science. It's not a movie about sword fighting space wizards. Just, just because it takes place in space doesn't mean you need to pee all over it. NDT, you don't need to pee all over it. Yeah, I do. Right? I, that that's the point where you got to draw the line. It's like, well, bullshit. It's a magic. It's a magical story with with characters who literally have supernatural powers. <laughs> so the fact that there'd be re- real science of this is just completely out of the way but um 
all three of us have actually seen Star Wars The Force Awakens, and I imagine that the people who listen to the show are going to want to hear us talk about it. Uh, Becky, let's start with you. What did you think of Star Wars The Force Awakens? I was really, really thrilled. Um, it was I was by myself, and so I posted on Facebook that I had a S- Sam, solo date night. Sam did not want to see it. Um, Sam was out of town, and oh. so I said, look, Sam's out of town. I haven't yet seen it. I'm still on vacation from school. I don't go back until after the new year, so I'll go. Um, so I posted that I had a solo date night because Sam was out of town, and, and then everyone said, don't you mean a solo date night? Oh. Yes, that's, that's why I had. The, that's Girl. why. That's why I put. Po- okay, so um, I was baffled by the seats. I haven't been in a modern cinema in <laughs> for a very long time. I don't usually go to the movie theater, and I felt really old trying to work the seats and the seat rests, <laughs> and um, and it was like eleven dollars for a small popcorn, which was the size of my head, and I I was like seriously hook me up, Lilu Multipass. How old are you? Are you sixty five years old? I am apparently sixty five years old. How do you work the seat and the headrest? Yes. So um, penny whistles and moon pies. It was it was bizarre but once i got beyond that and i buckled my seatbelt, um it was it was really really fun i mean it was just it was just super exciting and happy and you had smiles all over the place um and i i saw it like a week and a half after it came out and so i'm sure that half that theater had already seen it mm-hmm. but people were still laughing and cheering and um you know when when uh Organa comes out on the screen. There's, you know, bunches of people that are clapping because you have Carrie Fisher and she's experienced so much backlash and then also experienced so much praise for her, you know, reprisal of the role. So it was fun. I think How about you called, guys? Is that front lash when everyone's coming to your <laughs> defense? Lash. That you do something that makes people cheer you? You're like, yeah! Because <laughs> Carrie Fisher is fucking awesome in interviews and I aspire to one day hit the point where I have that few fucks to give <laughs> in public appearance where I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Um, you know, given the, the shit she's gone through in her life, she can go into an interview where somebody says something stupid or somebody says something bad on the internet. And she's like, this is not the worst thing that has happened in my life. And I can put this into perspective and I don't fucking care because there's nothing you can do to me at this point. And that is a wonderfully liberating place to be. I can mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. I, I love this movie. I really did. And I was really, really kind of in a position where I had such maybe I just had low, low expectations because of the three movies that had come out before this, but I thought it held up really well on a rewatch. This is the first movie I've seen three times in the theater since Return of the King. Hmm. It's been a really long time, and nowadays it's a rare thing for me to see something twice and for me to enjoy it twice. It doesn't feel like a long movie, even on the third time, even knowing that I paid for it. Um, I think that, and I've heard people say this about J.J. Abrams, that he's not a person who, I forget who said this, but I love this quote. He's not a person who composes symphonies. He's a person who remixes symphonies. And I think that a remix artist is exactly what this movie needed. It needed something that was a return to the classic feel and spirit of the original movies, which is a romping space adventure with compelling, fun characters that you like and who like each other and them going and doing great things and taking huge risks for each other and having fun space adventure and having a blast. And that's exactly what it felt like. And it felt like, and I've said this about the Star Wars prequels, it felt like everybody in the Star Wars prequels had been called in on their day off. 
that nobody wanted to be there. Nobody really liked each other. But, well, shit, we're all here. You might as well do this thing. I agree with you. I think the strength of what J.J. Abrams did was the return to form, but it was the way that he – the way that he – the theatric – the it worked theatrically. As in the actors themselves, the scenarios that the actors are in, the characters – how they expressed them and how they spun those characters together and what kind of magic they made between those characters is what really works the best. And I've had a lot of time to deflate on this. I saw it my first time with you, Mike, and then I saw it like a week later uh, again at a super at the Cinerama at a super huge theater in Seattle. And uh, I like it less and less, actually, as I as I get more distance from it. As I go, if I walk away from it, it's just sort of like the into darkness problem is that the more you're away from it, the more you realize there are parts of it that just fail upon scrutiny, upon actually thinking about it. And part of me knows that um, it's a Star Wars movie, and so therefore it does not need to be logically consistent, and it doesn't matter if things have been borrowed from from stuff. I just feel like it's the same thing where um, they're, he's afraid to let really let those great character beats ever live because it's just a little signpost on the way to some some uh, the next string of sort of action beats where they're moving along at warp speed um and then it stops for a moment where you get some more character beat and then before you can actually ever savor it it's on to the next thing on to the next thing on to the next thing and i went back and watched the first 45 minutes of of new hope and you did the the, the, the amount of dialogue and talking in the first star wars movie is insane by comparison to uh to The Force Awakens, and part of that is just filmmaking in the 70s and filmmaking now for big-ticket movies. But it's just a question of there's the discomfort with the idea that the characters can have more than two or three lines with each other before they have to run off and do something crazy. I would I would fight a little bit against the idea that it's a lot like Into Darkness um, in that I think that the, the story doesn't completely fall apart the way that Into Darkness does. Um, I like the characters in this movie a lot more. I thought that... One, it's the first time I've seen Harrison Ford really try and be engaged in a movie since at least the 90s. Right. And I was happy about Harrison Ford, but I think it was like the – I think it was – using Harrison Ford in this movie was a lot like using uh, Leonard Nimoy in the original ones where it's like one too many times, guys. Doing it again. No, one too many I, times. I think it was a good way for him to bow out on. I mean this, of course, spoil, everyone knows by now that this is going to be his last Star Wars movie. But I think it was less like a, a cheap trick but more of a passing of the torch sort of moment. I, I had uh... – been hearing about Star Wars and saying, oh, well, you know, there's really good cameos for, you know, the original cast members. And I said, no, I went and saw it. And I said, I was surprised by how much Harrison Ford was in the yeah, movie. They how give much him there something was. to do. Right. And it was and it was really fun and awesome. And I saw it as a handing of the torch as well. Um, and and I, I liked it. I liked that the characters. Here's the thing. I liked the movie in spite of the characters having just little glimpses of their characterization and of them being very simplistic and of them um, being very, very rehashed and reflective of eight million other things. Because mm-hmm. every single one of those characters you've seen in some other thing. They're little archetypes. They're there. But the fact that every single one of them are in this movie and in this movie in this way um, was just really fun. And I, I get your feeling of we have to dash off to the next thing. But throughout the whole movie, the prevailing thing for me, the prevailing feeling for me was excitement. And it was a mm. very exciting movie. I, I don't doubt, I don't dispute that it's exciting. I, I think it was, I think my first time through was actually really nice and I was really refreshed. Part of that, I think, is just the, these aren't the prequels. 
part of it is that you were so conditioned to being like the new Star Wars is kind of not good, not fun to watch, not fun. Right. This is a fun Star Wars movie. That's I would, there. I wouldn't argue that there are no quiet, reflective moments or no character beats. No, in I'm it. not saying that there um, aren't. I'm saying that they is that they is that when you get them there, when you get them there, just brief flashes, and then they've got to run to the next thing. But I think the like the setup for the character of Ray, I think, is a really good example of doing a lot of this stuff non-verbally. Ray's that, the one that gets the best treatment for that, sure. There's a lot of stuff that you see with her quietly going about what her regular life was before the movie plot kicked in and shoves her into space. That you do see what she has to do, which is climb through a bunch of stuff and pick out garbage that she and not a lot of other people can recognize as valuable. Sell it to this guy who gives her this weird green stuff that she can turn into something that looks kind of like bread <laughs> and probably doesn't taste great, but it stops you from dying. Right. Um, and that you're constantly haggling over this stuff and you have kind of a living hand to mouth sort of thing and having to survive by your own wits. And the fact- well, and the great part about it was that it was done through visual storytelling, right? Yeah. Like, and that's also clearly one of J.J. Abrams' great strengths. Also, Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote the screenplay and wrote Empire Strikes Back. So there's a lot of that in there. That's why I didn't mind uh, lack of dialogue compared to A New Hope. Because in yeah. A New Hope, you have a lot of tell, not show, as opposed to show, not right. tell. Yeah. No, and, and I, that's critical for a movie, obviously. You need to show, not tell. I'm just saying is that once the movie actually starts kicking into the kicking into gear, like the I that the whole first scene, the intrigue behind what Poe Dameron is doing there and Max von Sydow's character and sort of why they're there and what's going on. Um, I understand the mystery box thing that he has of not letting too much go too early. There's just sometimes there's so much that I would want to be flushed out. Mike, you and I have talked about this is I want to know why they're the resistance. Why are Leia Organa's team why are they the resistance, and why are the why is the first order not the resistance? You know what I mean? They're the rebels. Yeah. They're trying to destabilize the the big, the great big monolith. You know? I think a lot of this is this is to me at least this is the big weakness of the movie. But I think the other pieces of it stop it from breaking the movie to me. Oh, is, I mean, I don't think it breaks, but yes, I, I don't think I, it breaks the movie. It certainly is perplexing to it's me. It's the one narrative it's, weakness of the movie is that they don't do a good enough job, and they could have done this with a couple lines of dialogue interwoven throughout various parts of the movie, and maybe an added sentence in the crawl. Just a, not even sentence, like half a sentence mixed to something. Right. But explaining, you know, what is the, the New Republic? Why are they the resistance? Are they the same thing as the Republic? No, they're not. And uh, why is the New Order? You know, that, trying to set that whole thing up and what the status quo of the government is when the you don't want to stop and do everything episode one style and have a bunch of people teaching you Robert's rules of order. But <laughs> you Easier just to do it with uh, light and dark costuming and lighting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Blue and red. Yeah. Blue and red. The sun is now drained. Because I actually do know the answers to those questions, but I know them from looking at the visual encyclopedia book that they put out as an added thing to this movie. And the stuff should be in the movie. And I mm-hmm. get that. I, that's absolutely true. But then you couldn't buy it and give them money. I, I think it's less about that. I think it was more about them, about the need for concision with the type of, the, with the exposition. Is they just, they need this, like, this is, I, I, I think this is part of the problem too. They just need to zip all of the exposition up into the smallest packets possible to th- to thread the action beats that push that push the movie going forward and that's not bad because the movie going forward and being exciting going along with it is three quarters of the reason why the movie works i just lament the fact that um that good stories take the back seat to uh, like like uh my this is the example i used for mike the second time i saw the movie i didn't remember that there was this completely cgi scene where they take the millennium falcon and then 
get out of hyperspace at the last second at the Starkiller planet, and then they crash land into snowy trees and stuff. I didn't remember that whole thing existed, and it slides to the, right to the edge of the cliff. I don't remember that actually existed. I remember the dialogue that happened beforehand and the character stuff that happened after. After I didn't remember any part of that at all. So but, how important to the story is it if you, if on a, 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 in the span of a week you forget that that scene even exists? Isn't that a good sign for exactly the opposite of the thing you're felting, that you didn't feel there was enough of the character beats and too much of the action? The, the character beats are the stuff that you remember? No, I mean, but how much how much more of the budget do they spend on paying ILM to to build those, you know, 20,000 effect shots that build those things that are just I'm, I'm obligatory the- in, in these movies that are, that are completely and utterly forgettable? And, and if, I think your argument would be that if instead of having eight seconds of that super awesome shot of you know, coming to a halt on the cliff, if they just did a star wipe and be like, okay, I guess we're now on a fucking cold planet and Chewie's complaining that it's fucking cold and you could say like, oh, there could be eight more seconds of some other kind of right. revealing of, thing Of between... the stuff that I do like about what the movie is. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because yeah. I, I feel that, and I've talked to you a lot about this, Casey, is that I think you're being yeah, and more it's negative getting, it's getting in this worse, context. And it's getting worse the later it's going. This is the problem. It's a festering wound. No, well, let's talk about the stuff you actually liked in the movie, though. I loved all three of the new characters. The, yeah, I do, yeah, too. I loved all three of the new main characters. Uh, are you count- You're not counting BB-8 as character, then? Are you talking the three human no, characters? No, I don't count robots as characters. <laughs> They're not people. They're just things. <laughs> we don't serve their kind here. <laughs> Casey outs himself as an anti-robotist. <laughs> No, oh, BB-8 was. Oh, I got so so. I got so much like you anti robite. I got like lots of robite. <laughs> got lots of like heart, little heart swells from BB-8. He BB-8 was, was very cute. Awesome. I liked really the new awesome. Yoda stand-in. Maz was awesome. She Maz was a was great a character. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And and I'm I'm you know I'm wondering like you saw her big statue fall over and the attack on her on her pseudo cantina right, but we don't know if she's actually dead. So I would love to see. Some other kinds of, you know, resurgence of Maz. Somewhere. Oh, she's going to come back. There originally was a scene where she um, actually go, leaves the planet with them. But they found that she had nothing to do, so they just cut those bits out. Yeah. Because uh, they're like, it doesn't make sense. Because there's a scene See, in the- See, you happy, Casey? You happy? Oh, they I'm sure things. there's lots of things they cut out. I'm sure well, there's cut, lots forgettable of things, things they cut out. But uh, she is alive, at the very least, at mm. least uh, as far as I know. And the thing I do <laughs> like is that normally what you have is it's the equivalent of when an old band gets up for a concert, and you want them to just play the old hits, but you don't want to hear anything new from them. <laughs> the new stuff that's been added into this movie is so good that even knowing right. that- Harrison Ford, who's, you know, it was a return to form for him, too, even though this Harrison Ford, who I've been wanting to see for like 20 years now, is back, and I know he's not coming back, it doesn't bother me because all of the new things that they're doing, it's not just the hits that I want to hear. I want to see more stories with Ray and Finn and Poe Dameron and Kylo Ren, who are all great characters. And BB-8, sorry, Becky. Um, no, I, I like BB-8. BB-8's I'm, a lot I'm, of I'm really good with BB-8. <laughs> I mean, this is, these are all great. I think there's some, even to the degree of old characters, Chewie and Han get the most to do in any movie since Empire. Well, I like the little setup um, between Finn and Chewie. Finn is just like, I don't know what to do with this guy. He's I, I don't know. And he's sort of baffled by this and, and creating that little relationship and the little conflicts there. And that's a fun one. 
these characters are great. I want to yeah. go on adventures with these guys. And I know the next movie is going to be less of a, a rehash of old stuff because I think this is a foundation that they're blasting off from. Yeah. Something clear. familiar. And I think the next one will be their equivalent of an Empire Strikes Back, which kind of breaks the typical formula and it does has something to. new. I mean, it kind of has to. And they picked the the director, Ryan Johnson. Is I'm, I'm, I was always more excited about seeing what Ryan Johnson was going to do in the universe because I think that Brick and, uh, and Looper – were amazing movies and they don't they don't play like a, neither of those movies play like a movie a way a J.J. Abrams movie would play and that's why it's so fascinating to see with what he will do doing The Empire Strikes Back for the new trilogy I think uh, talking about the uh, most recent trilogy before this no my you know one of my friends had said that uh, the new Star Wars could exist without existence of the previous trilogy mm-hmm. that you don't have to have seen the previous trilogy to enjoy this. You don't even have to acknowledge that it existed. And in his mind, I know that it's not the case because they do name the star system that gets blown up in the Hiroshima test, right? The one Hosnian Prime. There we go. Um, mm. But his theory was that that's all of the planets that existed. <laughs> that's Naboo. That's Tatooine. <laughs> that's, that's, that's everything from the prequels. <laughs> that just uh, no gone off the map and for some reason there was no great disturbance in the force and nobody felt the, the pain of a thousand souls yeah. crying yeah. out Leia was definitely moved when uh, when Han Solo died but everyone was like eh, a few planets I can lose that, a few that was the thing I think was kind of a weakness is if they just blew up Washington DC and the central government of the new republic has been wiped out I don't think they gave it enough weight but this is just getting to the idea of what was a status quo before and what is the status quo now and what makes it so different um you know, it was so easy in the original trilogy that it's like, okay, there's a fascist government and there's a resistance against it who wants to return to the original form of government. If there they- was any doubt whether this, the New Order, or the First Order is the uh, is the um, fascist republic, we have none other than Fuhrer Weasley up there oh. with, with a black and red angular flag <laughs> where everyone's standing in formation. Yeah, it's like a Lenny Reifenstahl film like dropped in the middle of Star Wars. But here's the thing. You can see all of the references and it still works and you're still like hee hee they're yeah. Nazis they're Nazis they yeah, better- so that's why you don't feel bad about killing them whereas in the prequel you gotta make them robots or clones or CGI bugs for you to not feel bad about like murdering them by the thousands stormtroopers are actually more of people in this movie than they have been in all of Star Wars including the originals that you occasionally see them chit chat and stuff in the original Star Wars, but not just because you see Finn and you understand through Finn that these are probably all child soldiers who were kidnapped, mm-hmm. but you actually see other stormtroopers respond emotionally to seeing Finn, like screaming traitor at him. Yeah. He's called a traitor twice by two separate bad guys. And that you see them also being cowards and backing away from, oh, that's something I don't want to stick my yeah. foot in. Nobody wants to mess with uh, Kylo Ren's tantrums. And I love that. I think Kylo Ren is one of the best things about this movie. I like the Does idea- Does it mean Rilo Ken? Kylo- oh, we're still doing that, aren't we? Oh, yeah. So, so Kylo Ren is not Darth Vader, but he's essentially a kid who desperately wants to be. And everything that I remember, you mentioned you did not like his uh, digital voice and stuff, the enhancer in his helmet. Yeah. I love it now. Mm. I think it's great because it's entirely an affectation. Mm. That's true. It's a it's part of his character. The fact that his his uh, helmet looks a lot like the melted Darth Vader helmet that he keeps in his quarters, and it's clearly him trying to recreate this from an imperfect model. Mm. And he's trying to have a deep voice because that's what Darth Vader have. I'm trying to be this guy, and you don't want to you know, the fact that he just looks like some guy. He's just he looks like a kid. 
underneath it. He's like 30, and he's trying to look like this cool, collected guy. But his whole character is built off of insecurity and fear, and he's desperately trying to create this outer persona to cover the fact that he's frightened all the time. And mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And I think that that's where the prequels really fell down, because they were trying to create that with Darth Vader. Yeah. And in this, in in just probably eight minutes total of of storytelling reveals much more of that target than th- you know six hours of the of the prequels ever did for uh the development of darth vader look at how much you know screen time poe dameron and finn had together which is like maybe 10 minutes total in the whole movie their friendship is so much more well-defined and fun and infectious than all of anakin and obi-wan yeah, and you get a lot more time with Finn and Ray, and you or, understand how much these people care for each other, and how much they stick their neck out for each other, and you you understand why they like each other, right? Or hell, talking about chemistry between characters, between uh, Anakin and Padme, for that matter. Yeah, there was more camaraderie, more bosom buddy, attaboy, mm-hmm. I love you, man, between Finn and Poe. Yeah. Hey, no, keep my jacket; looks good on you, bud. Right, like yeah. that. Then there was between. Apparently the most passionate marriage that destroyed the universe or whatever in the galaxy. <laughs> yeah. You just you never bought it in the prequels. You never got the fact that these people are supposed to like each other. And I think that's the core of Star Wars is that you want to see these characters go on adventures because you kind of see yourself as this silent, intangible passenger that's going on adventures with them. Is you feel like they're your friends too. And because you like them, and I really love these new characters, I want to go on adventures with them. I like the little yeah. moment where, you know, BB-8 gives the thumbs up with the lighter, right. and I like the fact that Chewie makes sure that Han puts his coat on before they go back out into the snow, and little things like that, like little bickering. But it's bickering in a way that isn't "I hate you" and "I want to leave." It's we've done this so many times. Mm-hmm. That you know, Han and Chewie are practically a second married couple, mm-hmm. and I kind of, kind of love that about them. And I love yeah. uh, the fact that, you know, when the those two separate people show up who oh, Han Solo owes money to, that Chewie just kind of like nods his head when they like, what if I ever f- not given money when I promise? And he's like, eh. <laughs> and even the little moment where. Um, Finn says some remark about how, whether Han Solo is it Han Solo the war hero, and she's like, yeah. <laughs> it's little things like that that I think really make the movie that the emotional beats are dead on, the characters are good, and when that's there, I can forgive so many uh, plot problems, including ones that I think genuinely need to be fixed. A lot of the stuff issues I have with it were taste wise, like that's not the way I would have done that. I probably wouldn't have had um, Supreme Leader Snoke be another force-based monster man not my personal taste but it doesn't break the movie for me but hey we need to uh make sure that andy circus gets his uh, meal ticket so anytime there's gonna be mocap now hey we don't want andy to starve so with come on with the character snoke i have kind of two hopes for him that we've only seen him as a giant hologram the great and powerful oz he is a great (laughs) and powerful oz that he's like this 20 foot tall guy my two hopes are this one is either he really is 20 feet tall or two, he's actually super tiny, like smaller than Yoda. I'm going to go with smaller than Yoda. I'm going to go with super teeny. Uh, given the fact that they continually recycle characters uh, to make new characters, I'm going to say it's very likely that he'll be Yoda-sized. I want him to be like three feet tall. <laughs> and I want I want him to be Hobbit-sized because then it's like he's insecure too. Yeah, yep. That, that was the sense that I got the entire time of 
of Snoke. Uh, the the thing that did take me out of out of it was the CG, so the Snoke and the the octopusy weird monsters going through the yeah. Millennium Falcon, you know. But but here's the thing about Snoke, it was recoverable because oh, we are meaning to project it as a CG hologram. So it's okay that it's CG because it's sort of covered up with technology. But what I really, yeah. really did like, and the reason those took me out of the the movie ever so briefly was because there were so many props. Yeah. yeah. So many props, like yeah. made of real atomic matter. Yes. I <laughs> love it. Jakku felt really good. Yeah. Felt really, really good. Uh, Mas sure. Kanata's uh, cantina was great. Yeah. And there's like the robot who says, like, the robot's here. We got to call the resistance, where his mouth is like made out of an old timey sparky microphone. <laughs> I love that. There's a, And the other one, it's like there are real people in costumes. I think the only bit of CGI that I really recognized was that weird computer game where it looks like strands of DNA fight each other. That is going out on one of the tables in there. Other than that, it's a bunch of people in costumes. It's a bunch of real robots that are walking around. They save the CGI for the stuff that's really supposed to be there. And I think that when you have a a fantastical world, you need elements to ground it even more. So you need those real places. Like being really in the woods and being really in snow. Yeah. Well, yeah, because when you have something that is an object for real, it's got to get dirty. Yeah. And... And there was a lot of dirt and smudge on on the stuff in this film. Yeah, I liked it's, the, it. it's the old future, just like yeah. the original trilogy. The that, future is old. You look at like uh, BB-8. BB-8 is pretty dirty throughout this movie. And yeah. BB-8 would be dirty throughout this movie, especially 90% of DB-8's body is going to touch the ground at some point. Everything except for the head. And so, yeah, there's like scratches and little dings and stuff. It's like, you know, I haven't washed my car in, God, like six months now. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't look like it's covered in mud, but it definitely looks worn upon. It's a car. It's definitely a car that didn't just come off of the lot. And I kind of like that because most people don't have brand new things. And just the sense of it's a, a universe that's lived in really helps sell the more fantastical things because then I can believe that these are people in a world when everything is CGI. And I, I'd say this about the Star Wars prequels, but also about the Hobbit movies that have come out. There are elements that completely take me out of it because I don't feel like I'm in a real place and people are reacting with real stuff. And it feels like I'm in a video game. And I'm just like, oh, never mind. You know, it's <laughs> it's like this could be really exciting if I felt like people were really in the desert or they were really outside. Um, I I'm glad that came back so much. I really am. There is so there's a lot to be praiseworthy about it, not least of which is the fact that this box office success will guarantee that there will now be uh, Star Wars movies forever and ever and ever until the cockroaches rule, um, and then it will be cockroach Star Wars. Uh, I, some of them will be good, and some of them will be not so good, and that's okay because we'll keep having so opportunities. I, I think this is this is a little bit of Casey therapy here because I think that. J.J. Abrams has created a wound in my in my soul for what I perceive to be um, pushing Star Star Trek, the series that I care a lot more about, into a place that I think is kind of irretrievably part of this sort of big action vein, this Michael Bay vein. Um, and of course, the trailer for Star Trek Beyond did not do well to help assuage that fear at all. And I, I think maybe I'm unduly placing onto the new Star Wars movie a lot of the animosity that I harbor towards J.J. Abrams. Although, that said, though, it's clear that there are things that he does really well, especially when it makes, when it's regards to making characters that you like and that the characters on screen react to one another as if they are buddies or react to one another on, on in 
in this theatrical space that makes them seem real. Like it's clear that he's very good at doing that. Um, he does but, action really well, even in CGI bits where you're never confused at what's going on. Right. You yes. can always follow it. But I think that's maybe where it's come. This that's where this sort of a lot of this negativity is coming from. I think the movie has lots of problems, um, not least of which is the really the bend over backward for fan service. Um, but I think that it's that's all that's all pales in comparison to just how fun the movie is to actually watch. Um, and you can just take my gripes with a grain of salt. We'll we'll get off your lawn, Casey. <laughs> no, I wanted I wanted it to be good, and it was good in the way, and I'm and it made me excited not for to see this one again because I don't think I'm going to see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I'll see it again probably before the next movie, so two years from now I'll watch it again. But it made me excited for not a J.J. Abrams Star Wars movie is what it made me excited for. Yeah, I I actually like Star Wars again. I've it's been a long time. Um, I don't know. I've, Becky, did you grow up being a Star Wars fan, or is this just on the periphery of it? Because I think Casey and I were pretty in deep in this shit. Um, no, we we definitely had Star Wars in our family, um, and liked it. And you know, you uh, when you're a little kid and you have your hair in pigtails and you're walking around, you know, in the laundry baskets there, and there's a white sheet, then you put it over yourself and you pretend to be Leia, you know, and <laughs> well, that's what I did. I did that last week. <laughs> Um, Leia's a badass. Yeah. Um, I Nine think on-screen kills, by the way. We, <laughs> we, wow. We didn't watch um, Hut Slayer Leia. Um, Hut Slayer. Hut Slayer. It's not Slave Girl Leia. It's Hut Slayer. Don't you listen to Carrie Fisher? Don't be a hut shamer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we didn't watch that, I think, because my parents just didn't like it very much. Um, it wasn't a huge you know joy of my parents so we didn't have them around but i think um you know we videotaped them off the you know off the tv there was a bunch of times that one of the networks played all three of them during christmases we went to go see the re-release in the theaters um so yeah i liked it yeah star wars yeah i star wars is one of those weird things that i think is i love a lot of things in life i mean i'm i'm a giant fucking nerd and Star Wars was the one thing I loved that was actually pretty mainstream. That I was a big fan of like superhero stuff and I had a lot of nerdy friends who liked stuff but I never really had other comic book friends. But I had plenty of Star Wars friends. Star Wars was the one thing where you could kind of let your nerd flag fly and it was okay. There was no jock asshole who'd beat the shit out of you for liking Star Wars. <laughs> because it was it was universal. I mean everybody liked Star Wars to various degrees. Not everyone knew the name of uh, the snake-headed guy that's uh, hanging out with uh, Jabba the Hutt, Bib Fortuna. But um, <laughs> you kind of knew all the scenes. I know at least two guys in high school who admitted one of them had a scar on his chin, he said, because he tried to do the trick with a diving board that Luke did over the Sarlacc pit <laughs> where he turns around and tries to launch himself back up, clocked himself in the jaw. Um so I mean, there's a universal appeal to it. And well, you know that uh, that Java's ambassador is Bib Fortuna, but what's the name of the little squirrely guy? Salacious Crumb. Salacious Crumb. Okay, obviously you knew it. Yeah, <laughs> he's that little guy. He just needed to. I was just also wondered the, the the pig nose things with axes were the Gamorian guards. Yes. Are they from Gamora? 
I are, think there, are, so. are they hedons who uh, should be punished by being turned into pillars of salt? Speaking uh, of biblical things, I think the reason that Star Wars really did enter my family actually was more through Spaceballs. Space. Oh yeah, and I think that that's why that's why sort of I have these like really funny little things of playing. I think uh, I wasn't quite sure for a long time whether the big hairy guy's name was Chewbacca or Barf. Like I don't know. <laughs> like they kind of became one in my head. Um, so I think at some point when I was maybe 10, actually watching A New Hope and seeing Darth Vader was actually serious, the the split, the full split between Darth Vader and Rick Moranis really became quite clear because before that it was sort of intermingled. Oh, man. It, it, <laughs> I've, I loved Spaceballs. Spaceballs is still a great movie. See, I, now, now here's the real question. So Spaceballs is to Star Wars as Galaxy Quest is to Star Trek. Yes. But which is a better parody movie? Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Galaxy Quest is the Galaxy best Star Quest. Trek movie ever made. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well. I liked, and, and I was uh, a Trek family. Against, like, against Wrath of Khan? I don't know. I mean, Galaxy Quest is fucking hilarious. This, oh, by, oh, by the way, rest in peace, Dr. Lazarus. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. That, never give uh, up, never surrender. I, I love Alan Rickman. It's like, By Grabthar's hammer, he shall be mourned. He had the greatest voice. He could do deadpan sarcasm better than anyone. I really think Hans Gruber may be the best movie villain of all time. I'm I, 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 Grubering. He's part of my lexicon. Yeah, I, I love Hans Gruber. I just love – he was a perfect bad guy, perfect counterpoint to um, Bruce Willis. He's great in uh, in Galaxy Quest. He's great in Harry Potter. I think he makes everything he's in better. My first Alan Rickman film was Sense and Sensibility. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He played um, Rasputin in a TV series. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's a really weird side of Alan Rickman to see. You know what is another weird side of Alan Rickman to see? Him Robin sucking him? helium. And then <laughs> no. there was a there was a there's a bit on one of the talk late night talk shows and it's suck in the helium and then say something and it's just That's awesome. Of course, who better to to do that bit than Alan Rickman who's known for <laughs> his amazing voice. Oh god, yeah. I, there's there's actors that there's voices out there because I've had at least one person who listens to this show say it sounds like I have inside out vocal cords. <laughs> Which I'm fine with. I, I I understand my limitations. What does that mean? It, it means that... I, I sound like a mix between a nasally voice and a deep voice. I like your voice, Mike. <laughs> I know. I you know I I make do with what I have, but I wish I could sound like Pobody's nerfect, Mike. No, Pobody's nerfect. Pobody's nerfect. I I wish I could sound like Christopher Lee. Everyone wishes they could sound like Christopher Lee. Or not, that's James Earl Jones, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's so many great voices out there that uh, just talking sounds cool, um, and uh, Alan Rickman was one of the best. He could make mm-hmm. he could take a line that wasn't even especially well written and make it sound hilarious or terrifying. Uh, he had this wonderfully sort of resigned sarcasm and just like, you know, he was great as Professor Snape is that he just like, you get the impression that this is not the job I wanted. <laughs> These children are idiots. <laughs> and he was just so good at it. Um, I, I really love, he was great at everything. And uh, the world is a worse off place without him in it. True, true. So, man. <sighs> It's that uh, I'm sorry. I'm still still really reeling from Bowie being gone. I really am. That's uh, it is sad seeing Rickman go. But it was a really, really rough night for Sam when yeah we found out that Bowie had. It's uh, you know the Mike knows and 
uh, our listeners don't know that my dad passed away very recently and um, you know, um, it actually came, the news came one week after I delivered my dad's eulogy at a funeral and, you know, Bowie is, David Bowie, a musician who's famous is never, never congruent with a family member because you never, you don't know them in the same way. You don't have the same emotional connection. But Bowie was the one who I actually learned to care about popular music through. He was the guy who, Ryan, our Ryan Chaddock, a friend of the show, his dad was always the cool dad and he had records around. Um, and he would play Dave, the best of David Bowie. The Changes Bowie album was so huge. He was the guy that I learned to love music through. Um, and then, of course, there's something about being a teenager and about seeing what David Bowie did with, I'm going to adopt a persona that doesn't care about your taboos. Wearing makeup for him was such a huge slap in the face of sort of status quo society um, that it basically tells all the teenagers who are feeling are not uncomfortable are very uncomfortable in their skin. You know, the teenagers are they um, they you're looking for an outsider. You're looking you're you're looking to be a punk rocker or something. You know, you want to find something to distinguish you. David Bowie was always that sort of singular voice that could say you can be amazing on your uh, the way you are. You know, look at how look at how unique you can actually be. Um, so to lose that, to lose so much of, uh, you know, I have something like 2000 David Bowie songs in my, my, my digital music collection. Like so such a huge part of my life. This is just, this is jabbering on. I'm sorry. But, um, for Bowie to be lost is not just about a guy whose catalog of songs that you've heard, you know, uh, you know, a thousand times. He's sort of an icon that, uh, defined a lot of what 70s rock and roll was and by by that stretch defined what music popular music did after the whole thing and in every decade he has except for maybe the 2000s he's got um he's got songs that are just that are prototypical of styles and genres from that decade and have inspired people endlessly it's kind of weird and this is a thing that i've noticed more as i get into my mid to late thirties. And I think this will be the case with everybody in the world. And if we have listeners that are younger than I know we do, we have some people in their twenties and stuff is that once you get to about this age, I promise I'm not telling you to get off my lawn. <laughs> um, you start noticing that there were people who were adults when you were a very young child and they've been a part of your popular culture. They've been a musician. They've been uh, an actor. They've been an artist. Uh, they've been somebody who's been a presence in and out of things that you enjoy. And this is the age where those people start to die. And that, to me, has been a very hard transition to make. Like Leonard Nimoy was a huge, mm -hmm. huge punch in the gut because he had been this presence that was around before I was born and had always been on television. I'd seen him on so many screens and I was lucky to have gotten the opportunity to briefly talk to him at a comic con. I just wanted to see him and seeing him in three dimensions and rather than on a screen was really kind of cool because there's a, just a, a warm humanity to him and he just seems like a cool guy. And he's been such a part of so many of my experiences through every part of my life. I mean, I've technically known Leonard Nimoy in, you know, quotation In the marks. biblical sense? Yes. <laughs> Only behind closed doors. No, um, I have, I've had him as a presence in my life, even yeah. if it's on the periphery, yeah. longer than most people I know. And for him to be gone, same thing with like Alan Rickman and, and you know, David Bowie and stuff. These people were always there. And suddenly it's like I'm getting inching, inching closer to the being the old person myself. Mm. And it's... Hmm. It's weird. It's a weird sense that you sort of recognize the mortality of all these things around you. 
And knowing that there are going to be people who are 10 years older than us, the people that you grew up knowing and who've been a presence in your pop culture from your childhood to now, you're going to start to see them die off in the next 20 years. And there's something that's weird because it feels like deaths of parts of your childhood because yeah. it's it's not just that this is a piece of distracting entertainment. It's like there's a part of it where these are like these touchstones. These are things that you use as escapism to get away from the harder parts of your life, but also that you can share these with a lot of the people that you do know in your life. And they become these, that's, I mean, the, the podcast that we do on Arnold Schwarzenegger is the place that Arnold Schwarzenegger has in the lives of Casey and myself mm -hmm. and what it means to us. There's a lot of memories of our childhood and, you know, going to a sleepover and watching, you know, like Terminator 1 or Total Recall on VHS at a friend's house. And, you know, Arnold is almost 70 years old and we're going to live long enough to lose him, too. And it's going to be weird because it's yeah. we're starting to get into that point that it's it's easy, especially with David Bowie, because the guy was just apparently a Highlander. He hasn't yeah. aged since like the 1980s. And for somebody to suddenly be gone is weird. And I know that a lot of people are like, oh, you should be caring more about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, you can care about all this stuff at once. But right. it doesn't mean that this stuff doesn't impact our lives. And like you said, that we learn to love art and music and, and culture through these people and that we learn things about ourselves through loving this stuff and that we learn that it's okay to be the guy who unapologetically wears makeup. Mm -hmm. and says, you know what, I can be different, and I can make those people uncomfortable, and I can be fucking happy and successful, and I will fucking win, and I will I will get to be the person that I want to be and be successful doing it, and those people who call me names now will be wrong, and eventually they'll be dead. Mm -hmm. And that's a powerful thing to a lot of people um, who don't really feel like they fit in. I have it a lot easier than some people, but I never felt like I fit in. And when you're a teenager, that's the only thing you feel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how do we – we need a keyboard cat here. <laughs> Play us out, keyboard cats. <laughs> I think we do. No, uh, <laughs> oh, keyboard cat is dead too. Oh. <laughs> oh, see, oh. That's so sad. Everything becomes dust. Like sand through the hourglass, dude. Sand? Was it? What, is he, what does he say? Sand? Du oh, dust? Dude, oh, what is it? in in uh, Bill and Ted's when he's trying to do dust wind wind, dude? <laughs> no, he says dude, right? That's yeah, the third dude. Thing. Yes. Yeah, all we are is dust in the wind, dude. <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. when I was a kid, when I saw Star Wars for the first time, that it was all practical and real. Yeah, I'll take that red one. And seeing C-3PO and R2, there was no doubt. It was a physical, tangible, real thing. You knew it when you saw the movie. 
So I felt that it was really important that we make BB-8 as real as possible. BB-8 is so charismatic, a little bit feisty. I'm starting to wonder whether R2-D2 is a distant cousin. His design is so ingenious because it feels like I've seen it before. It feels like uh, it's familiar to the Star Wars universe, but it's not. It's completely new. It was a, a sketch that uh, I think JJ did on a napkin. JJ said, well, OK, why don't we take the next generation on from R2? He was the first character I had real scenes with, and I was nervous because it's not a human being. Where do you come from? Classified, really. But the puppeteers, they bring him to life. Daisy and John, they look at him as a co-star. I challenge anyone not to love BB-8. 